Iraq is very beautiful if we just delete the bombs and the, you know, the terrorist attacks. It, it is really blossoming to something really amazing. Iraq is not a small country. It's bigger than the state of Michigan, actually, twice almost, with a population of 35 getting close to 40 million. One out of 10 cars being driven around the world is because of Iraq's oil. There's a scene at the end of the 2017 Academy Awards-nominated film Lion, where the main character, Saru, played by Dev Patel, makes a phone call to his adoptive parents in Australia from India, where he has gone to search for his home. In the voicemail he leaves them, Saru says, I'm safe, and all the questions have been answered. This is what I imagine our guest for today's podcast said to his parents when he made a phone call to them from Ankawa, Iraq in 2008. Hey everybody, it's Rhoda again, and I'm so happy to be bringing you the story of Noor Maddy. Born in Iraq, Noor's family migrated to Michigan in 1992. But in 2008, after a whole lot of soul searching, Noor purchased a one-way ticket to Ankawa, where he has been living for the last 10 years. In this episode, Noor talks about that decision and where it has led him to, as well as the Shlama Foundation, which he co-founded with five other Assyrian Michiganders in hopes of not only helping Assyrians in the homeland, but also educating Assyrians and diaspora about our people and where they live. Noor's story might be unique, but I, for one, found so much inspiration in his passion for our people and his desire to help them with all the time and talent he's been given. Before we get into this week's interview, I just want to take a moment and welcome you if this is the very first episode of the Assyrian podcast you're listening to. We hope you'll subscribe and keep listening to future episodes. And also remember that older episodes can be streamed through Spotify as well as wherever podcasts are played on your phone. You can also find all of our episodes on our website, www.assyrianpodcast.com. And if you've been with us for a while, then please know we so appreciate you tuning in each week. We'd love to continue to hear from you on what you like and what you want us to improve on, so don't hesitate to reach out to us. And now, without further ado, here's Noor Maddie. Noor, thank you for joining me Thank you so today. much. Thank you so much for having me here. Salam and everybody. Can you talk a little bit about where you were born and when you and your family came to the United States? So I was born in the 80s during the Iran-Iraq War. Um, I was, my parents lived in Ankawa, but back then they didn't have any hospital, so they did a quick drive to Baghdad, did the birth, and then they came back to Ankawa. Um, tried to start a family there, my parents did, but by 1992 it became unbearable with the intimidation from the regime. Um, my father sometimes would be involved in political activism, so he eventually decided to take the family out. In 1992, we arrived in Turkey, and then we arrived in Greece, lived in Greece for two years, and then in 94, the American dream began. <laughs> and you settled in Michigan? Settled in Michigan, because that's where everybody else was at. Yeah. And um, slowly integrated like everybody else. What was life like when you first settled in Michigan, that integration process? It was very difficult. So you tried to be like everybody else so you can be cool like everybody else, so you can hang out with everybody else, but it was hard. Um, you had to learn so much. You had to learn what to say, how to wear, what to wear. And um, that took a lot of time, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. 
sometimes you'd ask yourself, why do I have brown eyes? Why does everybody else have blue eyes? Why do I have black eyes? Why do I have black hair? Everyone else has, you know, gold hair or brown hair. So you just felt different, especially in the era where I grew up, where it was not that many people from our kind there. But eventually um, things worked out. And did you at any point go back to Iraq to visit? No, not at all. I forgot about Iraq. I didn't even know nothing about Iraq. My parents never talked about Iraq. My parents never talked about our roots, anything. The only thing that was left was the language that we speak at home, and that's it. Um, and I think that's a trend. A lot of people you see do that here. A lot of um, Assyrians, when they move to America or Europe, they try to make their kids actually forget about the past life because it was so much full of suffering and pain. So they would not talk about it. They would say, okay, just go in there and accomplish everything you can here in America, for example. And so you went to school here. Did you go to college? Yeah, went to school here, Fitzgerald High School, then college, Macomb Community, and then Wayne State. Did everything, the sports, the partying. Eventually became very American, maybe too American. <laughs> the baggy clothes and everything. But at the same time, I just felt there was something missing. I don't know what it was. Eventually, it just became too much, like the depression level became too much. I just didn't feel like I had a fulfilling life here. And that's when I started asking questions. Questions about who you were? What, what were those questions about? Exactly, it was that. It was what, What's my purpose in life? What am I doing here? Is it just going to be like this every day, just nine to five, and that's it? Can we be any more impactful than this? And Or are we more meaningful than what, what, what kind of lives that we're living? So... I just wasn't really happy with a lot of other things. For example, I, I strive on culture. And unfortunately, we don't have that big of a culture here in America, in Detroit. It's all about work. You make money to pay your bills, and that's it. I just, I needed more than that. So I went and traveled a little bit, and then I started, thank God for the internet, <laughs> searching and searching. Then I found out, you know, about my history, about my past, things that... You know, Chaldean Catholic parents, unfortunately, will not teach their kids. So that um, eventually um, led to me convincing my parents to just go visit for a month. But I lied to them. It was a whole year until I seen them again. And then eventually I just came visited just once a year here. So did you buy a one-way ticket? Yes, I did. And you didn't tell them? No. Did they have any objection to you going at all? Of course. It was in 2008. Um, still very hot off the war, and it was actually the height of uh, insurgency where minorities started really getting targeted and killed. My mother especially, I love her very much, but um, it was hard seeing the pain that she went through by me making decisions, but I had to do it. I didn't have my parents' approval, but over time they've accepted it. It's been 10 years now. Did you speak Arabic when you decided that you wanted to go back? What were some of the things that you thought would be challenging? You know, did you think about language barrier at all? I didn't speak Arabic. And of course, I didn't speak Kurdish either. And I only know Sudith and English. Greek didn't help me there. <laughs> I didn't think about the language barrier at all um, because I was uh, feeling good since I had cousins still there mm. on my father's side. So I figured it would be easy because I have cousins there and Sudith I thought would be enough, and which surprisingly it was. Eventually... I did start seeing lots of challenges there. For example, changing my ways, changing how I speak, what is considered respect in terms of behavior and what you talk. That had to reprogram again in my head. You know, um, that took also time again. So it was once again me trying to, you know, integrate in the society for 
the second time. When you went back, what were you hoping to get out of that experience when you first thought about, I'm going to go back to Iraq? What were you hoping to get out of it? Happiness, actually. Happiness. I didn't have it in Detroit. I didn't, was not happy with the suburban life here. I don't know, maybe it's too, it was too boring for me or too slow for me. I needed action, I guess. I just, I just needed more than what... Um, and I love Detroit. I love everything that it's taught me. I am who I am today because of Detroit. I'm proud to be from Detroit, but it wasn't enough for me. So when you went back, did you have a job lined up or did you just go and stay with your cousins for a while? Talk to me about that. So I bought a ticket one way and I arrived without a job. I didn't even think about working. I just thought, hey, let me just chill. Let me just learn. Just wanted to learn. Who, who am I? What, what are, what's my culture? Uh, within a couple of weeks, though, I found a teaching opportunity. I'm not a teacher by training, but in the Middle East and actually outside of America, if you speak English, you can get a job anywhere. <laughs> not a good paying job, but at least you'll have something. So I accepted a teaching job at some small institute and slowly moved from one institute to a better school. And, and I did teaching for four years. That gave me you know, income in order for me to survive. What are some of the differences that you initially noticed about life there versus life here? People are more social there. People talk to you there. Um, there's no way you can walk in the street without anybody saying hi to you there. There's no way you can live in a house not knowing every single person in that street and seeing them every day. Um, for example, here, I don't even know who my neighbors are in Detroit. So, um, social. And that was uh, the biggest thing. That, that made me happy instantly. That there's communication, we're talking. That was the biggest difference, yeah. What is daily life like for you when you're there? What is a typical day in the life of Nurmati? My life has changed over the times. It's been 10 years. It was definitely a lot more simpler when I first moved there. But over the years, as I took more responsibilities, it's became, it has become more hectic. I currently work at Babylon Media. It's a private company owned by Syrians, actually. And I do television and radio. And with media, it's a 24-hour job. It's not a 9 to 5. So that takes most of my time. You know, from 7 a.m. I wake up, or 6.30 I wake up, I get there at 7.30, prepare the morning show, and then have three hours of live programming to wake up the region. It doesn't matter. It's morning. The sun is out. Noor and D with you guys here. So after that, I'm pretty exhausted. So I need a little rest, hour or two of rest, maybe three, and then get back to work again with television and radio, be it, you know, editing, production, planning. That would take me until six, seven o'clock. And then, you know, I would hopefully try to find time by then to either do a little bit gym or hang out with friends, go out. Usually in the, in the Middle East, or at least where, where I live, in Erbil and Kawa, people go out literally every day. That's something normal. Doing a lot of events or doing, like, for example, there's a grand opening for a restaurant. I have to be there as a public figure or doing, um, you know, maybe going to some um, church services or some kind of a cultural services. So there, there's not a moment where you're, you're not doing nothing. You're always doing something in a, in a city as busy as, you know, Erbil and Kawa. Everybody's always doing something. On the weekend, which unfortunately is only one day a week there, it's just Fridays, mm -hmm. I'm busy with Shlama. So I dedicate my time to Shlama. We take the car and we hit the road and we see where the needs are. And from there, we do the work. Can you talk a little bit about 
the differences you've noticed in the Assyrian community where you live versus the Assyrian community here in Michigan, but also just in diaspora in general? It's a big difference. First of all, I like how we still speak Assyrian back home mm-hmm. between us, businesses, everything. As you see here, unfortunately, the, gen- the new generation, they speak English with each other or whatever language, Swedish or... That's the biggest difference is that people are not holding on to their language in the diaspora as much, they are, as, much as we are doing in the homeland. And we also do have that um, pressure, actually. I mean, you know, during the bath time, you had Arabic being forced upon us. And while, yes, a lot of people were forced to change, but we still had the majority still speaking our language. And even sometimes you see that with Kurdish language being sometimes forced on us, yet we still, as a society there, we resist and speak our language. That's big. Other things, the people there are a lot more close to each other. Unfortunately, in the diaspora, even brothers don't see each other for months. And that's something very sad. Back home, there's no way you don't see your relatives at least once a week or maybe even every day. The relationship is a lot closer. Um, if somebody asks me to lend me money, I don't even think about it. You give it to him, and I don't even care when he pays me back. Whereas here, you're l- to the cent, literally. <laughs> I mean, speaking of, I mean, there, it's very embarrassing for friends or cousins to go out in the homeland and to actually split the bill. That is the biggest insult in the world. Whereas here, you know, it has they have accepted that, and hey, let's split the bill. So, um, the relationship of the side is a lot closer back home than it is here. What about? unity among Assyrians of different religious sects. What is that like there? Definitely is a lot better back in the home than it is here. You got literally two different churches deciding on living in two different cities. And eventually just that became the norm, whereas the Chaldean communities started living in Detroit and the Assyrian community lived in Chicago five hours apart when they could have been all one big community. Um, we don't have that big of a difference here. there. Nobody calls them, for the most part, 99%. There, they don't call themselves Chaldean or Syriac. We all call ourselves Suraya. And what you translate to Suraya is for every person themselves. But the main thing is that we do consider ourselves one community. For example, Nankawa, um, while you started as a Chaldean Catholic community, today you have Syriacs, you have Church of the East, you have ancient Church of the East, you have Armenians even. I mean, literally, Armenians and Assyrians are closer to each other in the homeland than, let's say, Assyrians between different communities in the diaspora. And that's, most, that's a lot because we're a minority and we stick together. We have no choice but to stick together. But it, um, it's something that maybe the diaspora can look at and you know, um, try to get that. I was going to ask you why you think that is. We come from places where we're a minority. We're still a minority in diaspora and in the West. Why do you think the divide is so much more palpable in the Assyrian community and diaspora? I'm really not sure. Obviously, the church plays a role because the split is a church split. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't even know. It's there's so it's so complicated. This whole issue about um, why do we have a Chaldean student association when we have an Assyrian student association? When there should be both one. We don't have that in the homeland. That'll be the biggest insult in the world. We have a you know Christian student association. That's it. Or a Chuyada association where they all come together, Chaldeans, Syriacs, and Assyrians, and that's it. It doesn't make sense to say, well, the church plays a stronger role in the society here because the church plays a strong role over there too. Yet we still get along and marry with each other very much. And, you know, we go to their church and they go to our church. So I really don't, I don't know how to answer that question. So you, you're saying the 
what the nation should be called, the name of the nation is a non-issue, essentially. The, pr- the thing is about the whole naming of the ish- nation or whatever. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of too many uh, Assyrians, Chaldeans, Syriacs, they spend too much emphasis and time and energy. Th- that makes them lose focus on mm-hmm. the real thing, which is our you know, survival, mm-hmm. our nation growing. So if we just put the whole naming issue to the side, that could be the first step of unity maybe. Each person can have in his heart whatever they want to name this nation. But first, you've got to accept unity. But if you're going to fight about what's the name of this nation, what's the name of that, well, how you have time and energy to fix all the other problems? I saw a post that you had on Facebook about the Asian community in Iraq having opened a business, and it made me think of diversity in Iraq. Can you talk a little bit about that? Iraq is very beautiful if we just delete the bombs and the, you know, the terrorist attacks. It, it is really blossoming to something really amazing. Iraq is not a small country. It's bigger than the state of Michigan, actually, twice almost, with a population of 35 getting close to 40 million. One out of 10 cars being driven around the world is because of Iraq's oil. So that means this nation is very wealthy and it will be very strong in the future as long as stability prevails. Because of the good finance that Iraq has despite the corruption despite all the problems oil is like a beating drum where people around the world come to it and find jobs and settle down today in the hook and erbil the community is very diverse we have literally people from 100 maybe 150 different countries from philippines to bangladesh to nepal uh, and the list goes on and on from africa ethiopia and kenya and and it's become something very normal. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, when they first started coming in, were, people were looking at them strangely because they'd never seen those people in their lives. But now, for example, an African person walks in the streets of Ankara and people don't look at them twice. It's something very normal. And um, diversity is beautiful. And actually, for a minority like us, we need the diversity. It's for our advantage so that you know, the majority doesn't target. It's just, it's just better if you have more different people, actually. There'll be more eyes, shall we say. There'll be more accountability. So, um, uh, Erbil de Hook is becoming very diverse. Nineveh, of course, not so much, but um, it's just a very beautiful mosaic where I live at today. Was there, you said you went to Iraq in 2008. Was there any point while you were there when things got pretty rough with attacks from ISIS or whatever it might be where you thought, the hell with this, I'm going back to my cozy life in Michigan. I never think about going back to Michigan. <laughs> I never thought about actually moving back or moving out of Iraq. But there, were, there have been moments where I was afraid. After 2014, of course, the beginning of it was a whole total tragedy, the biggest pain I ever felt in my life, watching my own people go through a genocide with my own eyes. But after that, so the coming years, 2015, uh, was probably the most difficult years in my life, receiving death threats because I was a public figure. And with Shlama taking me on the road every time, I remember there was just one night I was really, really afraid. And it was a night where we had no choice but to sleep in Al-Qosh. We couldn't go back. And ISIS was stationed about 10 minutes away from Al-Qosh. And we couldn't sleep because of the amount of bombardment, the amount of bombing. The U.S. Army was, you know, bombing them. As you could tell, ISIS was moving in on a, on the night, and you would hear the, and you would think about, well, what if, to me, it happens now? What happened, you know, to those other towns and villages where 
out of nowhere you're sleeping, you wake up, all of a sudden you have ISIS also surrounding you. That, that was very scary. But never in my mind, no, I said, I'm going to leave. How, how can I leave when I still have 150,000 people of my nation there? I can't abandon them. What was the general feeling amongst our people when that was happening? I can't even imagine. What was the atmosphere like in the community where you live? Hopelessness. It's like in a movie where the superhero dies. People had nothing in their hearts left. They were totally sad and depressed. All the bad things you could think of. Every single person, the most optimistic person became pessimistic. And um, it went on for years was the problem. Even the communities that were not affected by ISIS were affected by ISIS because all the displaced from Nineveh came to, for example, Duhok and Erbil. That led to people also leaving. People from Erbil, from Duhok, who have no, not to worry about ISIS, yet they left also, a lot of them left and were thinking about, and those I did remember were thinking about leaving because depression was surrounding you 24 seven. And I'm surprised, I don't know how I still don't have white hair, to be honest with you. Because it was every single day, wherever you go, it was depressions and sadness from 2014 to early 2016. I can't imagine. What is it like now? Has there been recovery? Um, and if so, what has the recovery process been like? There has been recovery, but it hasn't been as much as we would like it to see to be. There is optimism. People are happier now. People are laughing now. People do have their homes now. And people who are, you know, in their build to hook, them two cities, they are starting to reopen businesses again and think about reinvesting and not just selling everything and bouncing. So I look at the atmosphere of my people in terms of migration. So am I seeing and hearing a lot of people leaving? If it is, then that means it's not, the situation is not good. If you don't hear that often, then that means, okay, people are more comfortable now. And now, you know, in 2018, I can say the situation is better. It's definitely a lot better during, during when ISIS was controlling none of the planes. But we need more, and it's never going to stop. We're going to need to continue to work harder so that the people feel happy. Let's talk about Shlama. I want to hear about the inception of it all. How did, that, how did the idea of the Shlama Foundation come about, and when was it founded? You know, growing up, I never wanted to be rich, but I always would like fantasize about, man, if I had millions of dollars, I would build this for my people, I would build that for my people, especially after I rediscovered my roots. Oh, man, I would, I would build a sports facility, and I would build a top school, and I would build a nation, and that, was, that would be the only reason why I would want to be rich. Then, um, <laughs> of course, that never happened, but then uh, Musul happened. I was visiting my parents here. Uh, my grandma was still in Musul. Luckily, she, 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 came, she got out. We both came back in July. In July, I met up with a few um, community leaders here, young people. I've known them, you know, here and then. And, um, you know, they were very amazing people. And they had the same ambitions as me, wanting to help people. Chris, Rana, Yvette, and John. And uh, we sat down. We said, listen, you guys, how about we start f focusing and fixing on, you know, uh, Nineveh Plains and be stronger and forget Musul. Let's, let's focus on Nineveh Plains. After the meeting, two days later, Nineveh Plains falls. And now our task became even bigger. We, want, we were supposed to take all this money that we raised here. It wasn't a lot, but it was good um, to fix, you know, schools and stuff in, 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 in Tiskopa or, or Tilkepe or Baghdad. But we couldn't because ISIS was there. 
So then we, we became a humanitarian organization for three years, where it was just emergency, just, you know, food, medicine, the things that people needed for the three years that they were displaced. And basically what Shlama was, was the young people, they wanted to help back home, but they don't know how. As a matter of fact, many young people don't even know how homeland looks like. They, don't, they have no connection with the homeland. And that's alarming because you have social media, you would think that people would be connected by now. They haven't seen a picture of our homeland if it's not just from CNN where it's just a bomb blowing up. But that, that's not us. We, we have beautiful villages and towns and we have nice schools and we have beautiful stories of people and success stories and nobody knows about them. So I, I came with the idea of, okay, every single dollar we spend, we're going to post it on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter so that people will know where the money went. But not just that. So people can start connecting. So they start saying, you know, start learning things like, oh, that's where Al-Khosh is. Oh, that's how many people Ankawa has. So it was, it, was a, it was an idea where it would be, you know, holding accountability donations, but at the same time, an education kind of a project. And uh, it blossomed because of lots of amazing, successful uh, volunteers. These people, all of us are volunteers, of course. And what Shlama does would not be possible without the diaspora. And the Chaldean community really stepped up. And I can really say it is one of, if not the most major achievement of the Chaldean community in Detroit, giving the birth of Shlama Foundation. Of course, now, you know, Shlama is everywhere. It's international. It's worldwide. But um, the Chaldean community really did something really amazing. And it was all young people. Young people who stood up and they said, okay, hey, let's work hard. Let's do meetings. Let's do fundraisers. Let's collab with other people so that we can get as much money as possible to help our people back home. And, um, and that's, that's what, how Slam started. Can you talk about some of the projects that you guys have taken on over the last few years? Yeah, in the beginning of the years, like I said, it was lots of humanitarian because people just needed help for food, for, you know, medicine. So a lot of the first few years was that. But we, our goal was actually, you know, building communities, making communities stronger, giving things people that have in the diaspora to them in the homeland. So they don't say, oh, how come I don't have a nice school? Or how come I don't have a nice community center for my kids to go? Might as well go to America and, and have raise my kids there. So that's our main goal, is to make life prosperous in the homeland for our people. And uh, so with that, for example, we support community centers throughout the Nineveh Plains and, uh, you know, Erbil Duhok and Sleimani. And we support projects like, for example, soccer tournaments or princess parties. And a lot of times now what we're busy with is home rebuilding. That has been our main where money's been going to since the end of ISIS. We successfully rebuilt six homes and I want to say four apartments. It's not a big number, but... That's about, that's about, you know, more than 100 people getting their homes back. That's 100 people wouldn't have gotten their homes back if it wasn't for the young people in the diaspora collecting money and rebuilding the houses. So, and we have more homes coming up and we're going to continue rebuilding because none of the place is still um, not fixed, unfortunately. We still have lots of homes burned. So... Our projects just vary from different things. We have six different categories, and um, I told you a few of them. And we also have, for example, military aid, where we help our brave young men and women of MPU, for example. You know, these men, they don't have a lot of money. They join, you know, the MPU to serve their people, but at the same time, they need a little bit of salary. Often, they have to pay for their own food when they are, you know, deployed. So we do a lot of food aid to them and, and these kind of different things. Can I ask you about a specific project? Yeah. I saw something about a very a small village, maybe, um, 
the mayor's name was Mayor Gyoriel. Can you talk about that project? That seemed really heartwarming to me, but also just I want to get the backstory. So we have lots of villages in the homeland. I mean, it boggles my mind. We have so many different land that our people still own and live in them. Um, way deep inside the mountains in the borders of Syria and Turkey. One of them was uh, Dastetakh, small village. Uh, in history, it had about 25 families, but it went, eventually went, went, it dwindled down to eight families because it's so far from everywhere, in the middle of nowhere, literally. When you go there, your phone switches from Iraqi phone to Turkish cell, because right? it's, it's literally near, next to Turkey. Um, and because there was no economic stability there, there was no jobs there, lots of people started leaving the village and went down to eight families. We, co we do a lot of collaborations, and this one, I knew that it required a lot of money, something that Shaman doesn't have, these big, big projects. So we contacted some organizations in Paris, and Raoul Folaro decided to, yes, to come and visit. So I took my car and we drove five hours to this village and told him, look, here it is, here's the mayor, here's the family. We want to do a sheep project because we know these people can raise these sheep and make money and we'll take this money, we'll just continue to become like a cycle where they'll pay for their electricity, for the generator, they'll make you know um, milk for it, they'll go buy eggs with it, whatever. Eventually it'll be a cycle. Just give the first twenty, the first twenty thousand dollars, so the project can start. They agreed, and it happened. And now, more than a year later, they are so happy. As a matter of fact, they even created a tourism sector right in the village now, and people were there now until like midnight. It has become like a livable place now, all because it was just a small project. Now, twenty thousand dollars might sound a lot, but twenty thousand dollars just saved a piece of land from going extinct. Now let's try to do that more, more villages, more towns, so that um, the future, 100 years from now, that small little thing that we did, it will be a big effect because people will live in it. What are some future projects that you guys are thinking about for Shlama? We have always a lot of inquiries because, to be honest with you, not enough help is given to our people back home. Even though we're a small nation now, we're only 150,000. That's not a big number. There's not enough help coming to our people, especially after what they've suffered. Half of them have you know, lost what they had previously before ISIS. We want to continue, of course, to do home rebuilding. That is our number one priority. We still have many families displaced. Not everybody has returned. Just in Ankawa alone, we have about 700, 800 displaced families. They're renting homes. They cannot go back to Nineveh because their homes are so badly burned. So we want to continue to do that. But at the same time, um, we want to do other things. For example, in Telkepe, a very sad story. We want to fix that cemetery where we have, I believe, more than 3,000 people buried and ISIS bulldozered it. So we want to create like some kind of a, you know, um, monument. monument where we'll have the names and people that were buried there will receive, will get back their dignity. So the, the great-grandchildren of those people can come and visit them and see their names and when, when they were born and when, when they were dead. So we have Tilkepe in mind for the cemetery. We always have small projects for the youth. That is like always 100%. For example, today we just finished a project um, fixing the generator for the sports and community center in El Qush. So now the youth can use it in the day and the night and it's, it's something very beautiful. These kind of small projects we do on the regular. Kuyada is of course, you know, the student association we're always 100% supporting them. And in fact, we have a project that we will support them this coming month. We do a lot of collaborations with these small organizations back home where they have the, you know, they have the, 
the people, they just need the funding to do things. So we have a lot of things. Just look out, you know, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you will see. And the funding for Shlama, does that mainly come from fundraising events and money that's donated in the United States? Or what other people, you know, where else does the funding come from for Shlama? So first started only from the Detroit community, but uh, thank God it diversified. So now a lot of individuals just donate, you know, through PayPal from from around the world. We have sometimes fundraisers here and there. Uh, most of our fundraisers are in Detroit, but we have fundraisers sometimes in other places. Um, many Assyrian leaders are helping us, and that is just, you know, I cannot be thankful enough from amazing people like Movina in Chicago to um, the UFC fighter, Ben Hill, going around the world and going as far as Australia to raise funds. So um, we have a lot of people stepping up, and I cannot thank them enough. Islam is not owned by one person or by one city. It's a project that is owned by our nation. And it's for the people, it's for our people in the diaspora to determine how successful it will be. And I'm very happy, I'm very satisfied with um, our people in diaspora stepping up. The word home is a loaded word for a lot of people. I know it's been a complicated word for me for a lot of years. What does the word home mean to you? It's where you belong. It's the place that made you who you are. And all the people listening in the diaspora, people who have never been in the homeland, who are just born and raised in America or in Europe or in Australia, you are what you are today because of the home. You are what you are today because of the homeland. And that is why it should be so important you care about your homeland and do whatever you can to help your homeland. I'm not saying, hey, please donate to Islamic Foundation. I'm saying, do anything you can to help your nation because you are what you are because of your nation from your homeland. Be it helping your community if you are in, you know, in San Diego or in Chicago or collaborate with all the different wonderful organizations that we have like AAS or whoever to you know, send an impact back in the homeland. Never forget it because it is you. You were made from it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about was that a lot of children of immigrant families and a lot of just immigrants in general when they leave their homes uh, and they live in diaspora one of two things happen one is something that you talked about earlier with your family which was they there was so much suffering that they never even talked about where they came from and the other is that the integration process is so hard that they start looking back at their life in the homeland through what Salman Rushdie calls rosy colored glasses where those were simpler times that was better and it strikes me that you have this very interesting perspective because you have lived here in diaspora for a lot of years but now for the last 10 years you've also been living in in Iraq where you're where you were born where your family lived for a long time and I'm wondering how you look at life in diaspora versus there do those rosy colored glasses apply in the way that families oftentimes recount their stories about their homeland it depends it's not for everybody so for me i know for me it's um, a lot more beautiful living back in the homeland than living you know in detroit but that might not be the case for everybody especially for females um, females who are born and raised in the diaspora, it's literally almost 
impossible. I don't want to say impossible, but it's really hard for them to actually go back and even spend a whole month because they're used to the freedom that they have. And unfortunately, they don't have that freedom for the females um, in the Middle East. So for me, it is like that. And I love it. And um, while I have so many difficulties and so many problems like um, you know, I, I feel like I'm getting cancer because of the amount of pollution that is around us there in the region now because of all these bombs over the years. I'm still, you know, happy and take pride and live where I live. You know, with this whole world, there, there is no right answer. There is no heaven in this world. Every single person just needs to find out where they belong. And I just want to say that one of those places, it could be the homeland. That idea never went into people's head in the diaspora. What? Move back? That makes no sense. But I think people should consider it just like how they consider moving to another city. If you're living in uh, Detroit and you're not happy in Detroit, you're thinking about California, think about California. But if also California doesn't make you happy, then do think about the homeland because that could be the change that you're looking for. Unfortunately, depression is at an all-time high among everybody, specifically among you know, um, immigrants who are moving in the diaspora like you know, Assyrians. That is because they haven't found a purpose in their life or they, have, they haven't found happiness. Well, maybe that place is you know, where you, your life started. So think about it. And of course, we're always here to help with any question or any information about the homeland. And shout outs to Melinda, come moving back this month, you know. I believe born and raised in, in Cali and I'm going to make the big move and come back and work in Shwefat in Erbil. I just watched her video. It was really inspiring and I don't know her. I know she's from Modesto, which is not very far from where I grew up, but that was very inspiring to watch. How important do you think it is for Assyrians to have a piece of land that they can call their own in Iraq or anywhere? Of course it's very important and it's got to be in the Middle East. This whole idea of hey let's create a new Assyria in Chicago or California is ridiculous. Um, we all have to all have the common goal of helping our people in the homeland and hopefully, hopefully with luck something will pan out. We all want this Nineveh Plains to become a province and maybe that province will eventually become an administrative region. Um, but if we're not united first, then we can't even talk about this question. So yes, we should all fight for that, having a place of our own. It's ridiculous to not want that. We need that. Uh, our situation would be better. And um, our, you know, with Shlama and with me, our whole goal is to make the atmosphere of the situation as better as possible for that situation to happen. I know it sounds like a dream, but it's very well possible. We've seen a lot of things that we would never think would happen and it happened, bad and good. So it's very possible. Let's keep on fighting. Let's keep on dreaming. And as long as we're united, anything's possible. Can I read you something? Yeah. It's a poem that resonates with me. Uh, and it's not by an Assyrian, but it resonates with me. And I'm curious with your experiences if it will resonate with you. It's by Audre Lorde, and it's called Bicentennial Poem Number 21 Million. And it goes like this. I know the boundaries of my nation lie within myself, but when I see old movies of the final liberation of Paris with the French tanks rumbling over land that is their own again, and old French men weeping, hats over their hearts, singing a triumphant national anthem, 
My eyes fill up with muddy tears that have no earth to fall upon. I am wondering what that makes you think of. It's beautiful. And what what that says, what that is saying is that if you do your part at your own time, in the future, it will affect the next and next generation. So I cannot emphasize enough this importance of the same thing that this poem is saying is that you have to do your part. Every single person in, in World War II, for example, did their part for their great-grandchildren to have that feeling. And uh, if we continue, I'm very uh, optimistic that our great-grandchildren or our grandchildren will have a better situation than, than us. And that should be our main goal. That should be our main goal, to give the same feeling as that one person who wrote it to have in the future. So if you could say anything to our listeners about what you have found living in Iraq the last 10 years, what would you say? What have I found? Yeah, like what have you found? You said you went to look for happiness. And I'm curious, how did you find that? I did find happiness. And while it's surrounded by lots of difficulties and a lot of problems and a lot of depression, in the end, that big piece of happiness really stands up. And how did I found it is that having my purpose in life. I found that I became an influential person with my own community there, even before Shlama, where young people were like, wow, if this guy can choose anywhere he wants to live and he decides to live here in in Ankara with the crappy electricity and the crappy water and the bad everything, maybe I can do something here too. So that is the biggest happiness. What, what, where can I find a bigger happiness than this? You know, the beautiful beach in Australia doesn't give me that happiness. If you can motivate people to do things and be inspirational, that's it. That you, your force becomes times 10, times 20, times 30 people. And these 30 people will, you know, will do what you want to do. But because you're one person, you can't do it. So if we all do that, if we all find a purpose in life, and I'm not saying, hey, come all of you to the homeland. Do that where you live. Be that inspiration. Assyrian or non-Assyrian, just be that inspiration. Do good things. Do amazing things. Strive so that you can have that purpose in life. It's hard finding happiness in life. But I feel like a part of it is feeling that you have a meaning, right? So just find that meaning in life wherever you are and happiness will come with it. I thought of one other question for you, which is when you drive around in Dearborn, you see a lot of stores with Arabic signs. When you drive in Burbank, California and other places, you see a lot of signs with Farsi writing. When you drive around or walk around in Ankawa, you see places with Assyrian writing. What is that like? It's part of the happiness. It's the most beautiful thing when I go to Pizza Hut and it says, Pshena go Pizza Hut in Surith. It's so beautiful. Um, and uh, that just, it, it, it gives me goosebumps. And I feel like when I see that and I say, okay, step one, now let's do this in all the other towns and villages. So 
it's part of when I say I love living there because I love the dirt there. When, when I say the dirt, I don't mean the actual dirt, of course. I mean the whole thing where you have, for example, Sudith writing in the shops there where you can walk in the store and use your language to buy what you want and send your kids to Sudith schools and then so on and so on. All that is what the homeland is. You put all that together in a big basket and there you have it. Noor, thank you so much for talking to me both about Shlama but also about what life in Iraq has been like for you. I appreciate you sitting with me today. It was my pleasure and Assyrian Podcast is another amazing successful story within our nation. May it continue um, to touch so many people and I love all the interviews and I hope you guys continue to strive and, and serve our nation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.